An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our very special guest, three-time Grammy Award-winning musician, Xavier de Freplinez, who's better known by his stage name, Fantastic Negrito. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. As he notes on his website, the name Fantastic Negrito represents a third rebirth of sorts. He survived the Southern rapid culture change, moving from a conservative Muslim upbringing in Massachusetts to Oakland, California, where he was caught up in some, shall we say, street life that ultimately culminated with mass gunmen aiming a nine millimeter handgun in his head. He survived a failed million dollar record label deal that left him creatively adrift. And he survived a near fatal car crash that left him in a coma for three weeks and mangled his playing head. Fantastic Negrito's music is compelling. Some call him a combination of George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic fame and Prince. Certainly you can hear those influences in his music. But I also hear the unique mixture of pain and optimism of Lead Belly and the social activism of Woody Guthrie. I personally have laughed at and cried to it. It's made me want to dance and it's made me want to curl up in a fetal position. Fantastic the Greedo's music is the sound of a profoundly aware human who has, in his own words, lived through some shit. It's the sound of love and pain, of trauma and hope. Welcome, Xavier. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So listeners to the podcast know that the first question is always, what's your origin story? I ask because I find that interesting people often have had interesting lives and understanding those experiences help us better understand the person. In your case, the story has virtually innumerable twists and turns. So elucidators, tell us about the twists and turns, which help make you become the person you are today. I was born a three-year-old father and a 30-year-old mother, eighth child of 14 siblings in the whitest city on earth, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and then subsequently moved to uh, the blackest city on earth when I was 12, 1980. And uh, I left home at 12 years old and never returned, you know, hit the street life and, um, a lot of music and art along the way. I was signed to a million dollar record deal by Jimmy Iovine in the nineties. And it was a huge failure and got into a car accident, as you said, and left me in a three week coma. And then, which led me to quit music for five years. And then I, when I was a middle-aged guy at 47 or 46, I came back as a fantastic Negrito. And now the world knows me. I hope that that's kind of who I am as an artist, at least. Tell us about Fantastic Guido. I mean, some people adopt a stage persona 
and it's just entertainment. Like think about kiss or something. Others need that persona to become who they want to be. And others use that persona to showcase parts of their personalities that might otherwise be overshadowed. How do you view the relationship between Fantastic Negrito and Xavier? I'd be closer to the third one where it's just, I think I adopted a name as an artist to showcase parts of who I am. It's not completely who I am. I take off the Fantastic Negrito outfit and just become the guy who lives on a farm with 15 chickens. You know, that's um, probably a much easier guy to to be around. But originally when I thought about Fantastic Negrito, it was interesting because um, I'd gone through all that hype of, oh, a million dollar deal. And I was in my 20s, young and um, ambitious and good looking. And I wanted to be famous and have all the trimmings of fame and, uh, you know, best cars, women, houses, money, everything that we dream of in our 20s. After completely failing at that, um, I think it took decades of failure and living through tragedy and being tested in life and becoming a handicapped musician. Uh, I don't know if that's even a, a good term, but I'll, I'll use it for right now. It's lack of any imagination right now. You know, I was able to settle into this mode of Fantastic Negrito, which was an artist. I thought that, well, he wasn't looking for those things that a 20 year old was looking for. He wasn't even looking for um, anyone's approval, which was beautiful. I think Fantastic Negrito just wanted to be a contributor and was happy playing at the train station. I got sick of trying to be what other people wanted me to be. So I thought it was better to be a contributor and better to tell stories, you know, in the, um, tradition of the blues and black roots music is to tell the stories. Let's talk about some of those stories. Um, as we record this podcast, you literally have just released a new, I guess we still call them albums, white Jesus, black problems, um, which you describe as a love story. And it's ex inspired by the relationship between your great grandfather, and great grandmother, all of seven generations ago, I'm not going to Yes. Greets. And having listened to the album and having viewed the movie you released in conjunction with it, there's clearly also a love story between you and them. You seem to revere their perseverance and courage. How did you come to research your ancestry? And there's a couple of surprises there. And, and why did you choose to center the album around their romance from the 1750s? Well, first of all, I wasn't looking for it. And it started with, okay, I'd finished my third album. It was time for my fourth album. And I thought about doing collaborations with different artists that I had admired in my teens at some point. So it was from, you know, George Clinton, Stevie Wonder, Grace Jones, The Police, Talking Heads, David Byrne, all these all this amazing music from the eighties. So first person I got in touch with was Sting. I sent him a song and he liked it. So he bravely came to 34th and San Pablo Avenue in West Oakland, which with no bodyguard, by the way, I got to give him credit for that. And, um, we recorded a song and I thought, okay, this is the beginning of it. Boom. We got Sting. Let's get, let's get the train going. Let's, let's hit up, hit up our heroes. Let's hit up Taj Mahal. Let's hit up, all these guys and let's make an incredible pot of soup here. So 
that dream died because a few days after I, I recorded with Sting, the pandemic happened, lockdown happened. Ew, deflation. So um, I had to um, drop that idea, kind of just hang out for a year on the farm because there was no tours. And I think we, everyone was looking at everyone else like, what's going on? <laughs> hey, I haven't had a gig in a while. <laughs> so um, an amazing thing happened, a show called Black Lightning, which is a TV show. They called and wanted to use some of my music from Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? They wanted a performance. I was like, wow, this is a great gig. I'm happy to go do this. And upon getting there, I didn't realize that, oh, everyone's quarantined. Stay in your hotel room, which led to a lot of time, which led to getting on a laptop, looking at a few messages, and boom, I get a message from someone, you know, who had deep, dark family secrets, you know, and um, I didn't know what to make of it. I, I started pressing a few links, and first thing I realized, to my surprise, forget about the story I wrote about, was that mostly everything I learned about my father was knew about my father was a complete lie, including that last name that you can't pronounce. That my father completely fabricated his entire existence. And I thought, why did he do this? And I had room in his hotel. And the first thing I thought of, and I love when things come to my brain and I don't have to think about them. It was boom, white Jesus, black problems. It just, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And why, why is this happening? I think I thought, well, my dad was born in 1905. He was a brilliant guy who thought outside of the box, abusive to his family and all that stuff too. But I thought, why would someone create this persona, this lie? And then immediately I thought, oh, well, my dad was challenging like the edifice of white supremacy and he wasn't asking permission. He was not willing, willing, to be a victim, to be anybody's victim. But he wanted to be the man that he felt like he was inside. So anyways, I, I wasn't going to be able to write that album because I can't be honest about my father because I have a very conflicted relationship with him because I love him and I think he's a hero, but he's a very terrible person too. I mean, he, the person that got rid of most of his kids to foster care, including me at 12 years old. And that, that was bad man that could have a lot of bad things happened to me and um you don't you don't abandon your kids when they're 12 they're not ready for the, the world sorry they're not prepared so i got through it and i survived and so then i went to my mother's side because i wasn't going to be able to write that version of white jesus black problems where my father is this hero so my mother's side i saw these black people that i've seen before but they were dressed immaculate during slavery. How do you get cameras during slavery? What are you, hey, I'm picking cotton, wait, let me get a camera. You know, I, I don't think it goes like that, but so I was very uh, intrigued by these photos. And I started looking at these individuals um, with census cards and to my surprise, it said registered free Negroes. Whoa, whoa, say that again? I'm sitting in this hotel quarantine in Atlanta and I'm reading registered free Negroes. So then I did something that African-Americans cannot do. I go to the fourth generation of my, my, my lineage. 
registered free Negroes, fifth generation, registered sixth. Everybody's free on my mother's maternal side, not paternal side. So then I start to get very strange feelings, my friend. They're strange. First, I felt, I looked around the room like someone was watching me almost. I did feel strangely this sense of guilt. Ouch. I mean, I, I hate to be that honest, but it, I thought, wow, like I've been, you know, we've been railing, you know, against poor whitey, you know, and it's like, here we are. We had some free blood. <laughs> let's give all the white people a hug in the room. No. But I mean, it, let's, I mean, well, 75% of my blood came from enslaved people, but I don't know why that made me feel that way. I, I'd need to go to um, some therapy to figure out like, why did I feel that strange sense of guilt? Like, well, all along you had some free Negro blood, as they say, and while other uh, your, their brethren were enslaved, for some reason, these people were free. And I don't know, it didn't sit that well with me, which, man, I don't know why. I still don't know why. But, but I think in America, there's this narrative always of like, okay, you're the slaves, we were the owners, all right? You picked the cotton, we made the money. And I just don't think that um, it was that's really the truest narrative. I'm sorry to disappoint people who may, you know, need that dog in the race all the time, but I think that it, there's a lot of nuances and that's what I was learning. So I figure, why were they free? So I get to the, what do they call it? The smoking gun, which is a document that I memorized. Seventh generation grandmother, Elizabeth Gallimore, presented in Amelia County Court, Virginia, for unlawfully cohabitating with a Negro slave belonging to Henry Jones and having several mulatto children. And I, I had to sit with that in that quarantine for a long time. I think I kept reading it over and 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 over again, trying to figure out, is it real? Is it fake? Is it, how? why didn't anyone ever talk about this? This is extraordinary. And I went right back to my original thought white Jesus, black problems. I thought, but this time there's a white Scottish indentured servant and a black enslaved man. And they did something that we can't do in modernity. They got something done. And I thought, man, that is powerful. They got something done under the most strenuous situation, insurmountable odds at the peak of you know, American slavery and segregationist laws. I mean, you, I don't think my grandfather was considered a human being like an, or, or, or something crazy like that. So that, it became just so inspiring to me. And then it was like a speeding train. I just got out of the way and I let the music just write itself and I let the story happen. And then before I knew it, I was making a film and it just kept going and going. It's extremely organic process of discovery. Let's talk about contributing. You have a very special relationship with the city of Oakland, and you've recently tried locally to make things better with, you mentioned the farm, the Revolution Plantation, and Storefront Records. Um, tell us about them and what you try to accomplish with those. I would say with Storefront, um, I thought it'd be great to fire up a label um, that was that was different. It had different intentions. 
And instead of going out and signing artists, everybody's like, sign artists on that. Thought like, I don't want to be that kind of label. Although I do have doing some artist development now, but I thought, which is something that used to happen in the seventies and eighties. And I think it's a lost art, but I thought, um, like having a market where vendors can come in free of charge, keep all of their money. I thought that's a great way to kind of impact people around you in your community, put money in people's pockets. That's easy one. And I thought about a space, a creative space where artists, they don't have to be signed to the label and all this stuff, just to have a place where people can come and um, do the thing that's very basic as human beings express themselves. But I think it's extremely healthy for the neighborhoods we live in and communities that we live in. So that was something that I wanted to do. And I don't like to think like, oh, I'm doing something for everybody. I don't like that. I think it's just, I'm doing what a human being could and should do, which is um, we have a platform, try to make things better. I mean, you could try to make things worse. You could be self-serving, but that really won't lead to very much productivity. And I love productivity. I love producing something. I like doing something, whether it's an event, whether it's a record, whether it's a movie, whether it's a baby, you know, it's like make something happen. Um, and so that market really provides a space for great things to happen. I always felt like if you want some things to happen, we'll just go make them happen. Uh, as Negrito, just go play at the train station, you know, in the market, amazing incredible things happen because we just do it. And I'm a big fan of getting things done. I love getting things done. And uh, I think it's something we used to do in America. So creating that space is very important to me and just following in the footsteps of the legacy of the incredible art and music and film and philosophy that what the Bay Area is known for, quite frankly. And we don't want to drown in all that tech money now. <laughs> I want to get back to Oakland, but I, but I also want to ask you a, a hard question here. You're saying you want to get things done. You also talked about when, when you were in the street from 12 to before you signed that contract um, and moved to LA. I think you used the phrase, when you're in the jungle, there's nowhere to see. You're just trying to stay alive. Do you think part of what, now that you've, got this platform and, and rethought about who you are and who you want to be, that's enabled you to want to be productive and also, you know, enabled the artistic side to come out that you had to go through that jungle to come out the other side? Well, I don't trust anyone that hasn't been through anything. You know, I, this whole idea of sanitizing everything and you know, going back in people's past and like, oh man, you made a mistake. Oh, I got you. You know, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, unless you are like, you know, doing something horrendous, like raping people or abusing children or, you know, hurting animals, stuff. I don't know. But yeah, I think this idea that like people made mistakes in their 20s, just kind of, I, I don't really get it. And maybe I'm not smart enough to get it too. I don't, I wasn't the smartest one in the classroom, my family. But I think that the people that have uh, come up against obstacles, come up against challenges and overcame those challenges, I feel like those are the useful people in the village. Those are the people I want on my team. I don't trust people who haven't 
uh, been through anything. Sorry, maybe I've offended half the globe. <laughs> but yeah, if they're going to roll with me on my team, I mean, I like, I just feel like those are the people that have the most to say. And I think um, all my obstacles became my fuel and they become my fuel because there's always obstacles. And you can lie down and die at the feet of those obstacles or they can become your motivation or they can become your fuel. And I like that very much and I embrace it. And I'm not afraid to have been a person that failed or was severely flawed or made horrible mistakes. I did really stupid things. I'm okay with that. I get it. My kids tell me every once in a while when I get in a certain uh, mood, which you'll probably recognize. Um, I grew up in the Bronx while the Bronx was burning and they just go, dad, Bronx is coming out. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, I, you're probably a very valuable person to them because you, you saw that you experienced that you lived that. Now you have something to say. Yep. Well, there's um, a definite sense of place in your songs and in your life. Tell me about your relationship with Oakland. Relationship with Oakland. Well, it, um, I look at it as city that maybe saved my life in a way. I think when I was on the streets at a young age with no place to go, you imagine a 12 year old with everybody else goes home to their mother and father, but I just went where I could go. And I slept in abandoned cars, wherever I could find shelter wherever I can find food. But I also remember that along the way, and I still see some of these street vendors out here and they're my friends, and they were white hippies. They were Afghani street peddlers who's still out there, guys, people from Pakistan, they were Chinese, they were African-American. They were the children of, you know, wealthy white liberals, houses. You know, they, I think they had a sense that I had nowhere to go. They were everybody, everybody. The rainbow, the multicultural, multifaceted, loving hearts of Oakland and the Bay Area. As I feel like I was raised by these, uh, these uh, eclectic wolves, family of wolves. And I think it's a city that um, has contributed so much to the world. So much music came out of it. So much art, so much philosophy, so much culture, so many social activism. And um, I feel an obligation to make sure that we know who we are. And that's why I, you know, I decided to be the, the old middle-aged guy playing on the streets, screaming at the top of my lungs that we can, we can, we must, we will, you know, we are. And, uh, I still have a lot of hope for this city and I'm glad I'm honored to be uh, one of its ambassadors. What's exciting for you right now? What's next? What are you passionate about right now? Right now I bought my knee not hurting. <laughs> what did you do you need? I had knee surgery. You know, I, when you decide, when you're a middle-aged guy and decide to be a rock and roller and go hit the stages, you know, I mean, there's, there's a price for that. So no, but I'm okay. I'm doing better. Um, you know, I think I always, I don't want to give the, the answer you probably don't want to hear. Well, I mean, people may not like it, but I'm excited that I, I'm here and I get to participate another day and 
that really excites me just as a human being. And I try to always practice gratitude because it helps my attitude. You know, what's interesting about making, I made the film and the full length album. I also made an acoustic version of every song on the record, which I'll probably call that record, Black Jesus, White Problems. So, and that's really interesting. I'm looking forward to what people would think about that. It's very, very different, man. I imagine myself as a college kid in the dorm, was a fan of Fantastic Negrito, but really thought it was too much production. And just got his four friends together, got in a room and recorded like one takes of everything. And that's, that's what I did. Use brushes on the drums, upright bass, you know, guitar and piano. So that's exciting. And now I'm going to tour. I'm going to go do a world tour. Very cool. I could, I could just see the next uh, iteration being uh, fantastic. Negrito playing the village Vanguard and jazz and Lincoln center with the upright bass of the, and, and, and the four, that would, uh, that'd be pretty cool. I'm, um, I'm really, I like the sound of it actually. I've, Cause when I do the uh, screenings and the premieres, I just get up and I talk about the film. I let people ask me questions and I think it's a step forward. Like in, I don't know if it's kind of sound goofy, but uh, like kind of race relations and healing. I like that kind of stuff where we don't keep, I feel like in race relations, we go in a circle. We've been doing it since I was a kid in the seventies. Like here's the circle again, everybody get in your places. Get in your places here. We're going to do, but I, I think this story uh, of my grandparents from 270 years ago, it takes us out of the circle because it's a little bit of a different story. And so I've enjoyed that immensely. And I really would love to do that. Just, you know, do a screening and we all talk and I play a few songs on acoustic guitar. It's very beautiful. And I get a sense that we, it's kind of a, a, a little step forward where, no, every, everyone, I don't know. I don't know. How to, I'm not very articulate, but we've, I get the feeling that people don't feel, um, gotta be careful here. There's a, I get the feeling that we, I, I don't know how to say it, man, but I, the circle, like, it's not so much of, Hey, you did this to me and Hey, I did this to you and I, Hey, fuck you. And sorry, if I can't say that you can edit that out. It's not like, Hey man, you, it's more like, Hey, this thing happened. And these people made it and they came from opposite sides of the spectrum and somehow they made it, man. Isn't that, can't we grab onto that and ride that into the sunset instead of the usual thing where everybody feels bad. Someone feels pissed off from what someone feels blamed. Someone feels like a victim. Someone feels like a predator. It's like, I feel like when I'm doing that premiere that there's forgiveness kind of happening and that there's this, God, I love that. I, it's, Maybe I'm a sappy optimist and I feel like we can do it. And I really am in love with that kind of stuff. And um, I want to look at you and I, I want you to be my brother. And I want to come to your house and I want you to come to my house. Despite what we believe in, if you're a Jew, if you're a Christian, if you're a Mormon, if you're a saint, if you're a sinner, that we can get past the labels and we can meet up in that beautiful place together. That makes me very happy. I get very happy when I think of that. I get emotional. Let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. How do you relax? <laughs> Come on, man. Are you kidding me? There's no relaxing. 
Well, I think I'd probably relax if I could just, it's really boring. God, I, I feel, well, let's be, listen, you know what, here it is. I walk five miles a day. That I look forward to it and it's extremely rewarding and it benefits me and it's relaxing and it gives me a lot of optimism. There, I gave a better answer because I had a horrible answer. What was the horrible answer? I check myself in the hotel and I sleep and I tell people don't bother. <laughs> you mentioned the music you listened to growing up in the 80s. What do you listen to now that's not yours? Oh my gosh, you know, I have children. So I'm educating them on music. And let's say this, when I want to feel at my baddest self right now, particularly I'm obsessed with everything Fela ever recorded. Mm. I'm into it. And you can hear a little bit on high, Highest Bitter. I really got off the B3, which I'm usually on, love it. And I got into these 1970s transistor organs kind of Farfisa stuff that's a lot on the record. And that's from Fela. So a lot of Fela, man. Oh my God. Just, I think people are sick of me. Like you come over and it's a holiday and there's Fela. All day, all night, Fela. So that's one thing I'm, I find in educating children with music that I really, I, I love the music of the seventies, man. Okay. There's Fela again, but I go back to that a lot because I just felt like it was such a, an expression of, of beauty and courage and um, optimism and, and musicianship in that era. And like really good, good rap music and the good stuff. You know, I want to make sure my kids hear that. And, and a lot of, um, you know, Man, I put on, I remember during a, a cookout, I put on Queen. My kids are like, holy, whoa, yeah, Queen, you know? This is just, they thought it was so dramatic. And I'm like, yeah, like this music was artistry. Um, um, I try to play some Kendrick Lamar. He's a modern artist, but I feel like, wow, like I can, he's, I feel like this guy wants to be great. Like, oh man, he, anything that's like pushing boundaries or anything that's positive, I'm, I think I'm rambling on and on. But um, yeah, I feel like I'm doing a lot of music now where it's educational. Do you read a lot? What are you reading right now? You know, I do uh, the boring, lazy person's reading, which I'm ashamed to say, but I listen to a lot of books. Now, that's so terrible. But um, when I, 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 man, and everything, you know what I mean? But when I, and I, I'm going back to classics and I'm even when I'm reading, I'm kind of going back to like, Animal Farm and like the George Orwell stuff. I was like, wow, that I think I read that over like three times. Um, reading like uh, The Godfather, I'm I'm stuck in the seventies. I know. Um, I think I just love that era of creativity. There was so so much great stuff. I'm high on the hog, which is something that I did the music to that actually just won the Peabody. But I read High on the Hog, which is fascinating. One of the most fascinating books you know, in the last 50 years. And it is a book about, um, you know, African-Americans culinary journey. Fascinating, unbelievable. So I, I'm, um, I'm all over the place with, with reading stuff. Last question. You get to imbue the world with messages through your music, but if you could 
magically whisper into the ear of everyone in the world, what's the one thing you would tell them? I'd probably tell them it's not about you. <laughs> That's really helpful to me. That helped me grow like, you know, light years as a human being. Like, hey man, no, it's not about you. Uh, that's, that'd be it. And maybe I'd see what they, what they could do with that. But it helped me a lot. It helped me stay married. It helped me, my relationships. It helped me view the world differently. And I love that. Thanks so much. You know, the Journal of Roots Music once wrote, healer, entertainer, shaman, funketeer, and prophet. Fantastic Negrito is a demon-chasing, streetwise preacher who delivers the goods with funk and soul and a big dose of social consciousness to help us all get through these troubled times, end quote. So listeners, do me a favor. Listen to his extraordinary music. You'll hear something very rare in today's commodified artistic era. You'll hear the sound of humanity. Thanks so much, Xavier. Really appreciate it. endorsement. And that's why I'm running for president. No, thanks. <laughs> this is a good talk. I appreciate it very much. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.